Okay, let's continue in the book of Nehemiah. If you have your Bible, open it to chapter 10. If you need a copy of the scriptures, raise your hand and they'll get one to you. Nehemiah's towards the beginning. If you open to the middle and you're in Psalms, turn left and go that direction. It's right after Ezra, some of the Kings, Samuel, Chronicles, after those books there. You know, as we've been going through this book, we've been on a journey with one man and what he has accomplished in this time. We saw that he asked his cousin who had been in the area of Jerusalem, "How how is Jerusalem doing? How are the people there? And he said, it's not good. The walls are broken down. The gates are burned with fire. The people are basically exposed and they're in peril. And it was something that moved Nehemiah to want to act, to want to make a difference, to step into a place where he risked his own life by going before the king and asking the king for permission to go and for supplies to go and build up the walls and to restore that city. And in spite of the risk of his own life, He took into consideration the needs of the others, stepped into that risk, and we saw that not only did he get permission, but he got more than what he even asked for. We looked at how fear can paralyze us from moving forward into the things that God might have for us, and there's the fear from the enemies that would try and attack us, and then there is the persecution from those that we really care about that actually can steal our fear as well, or steal our strength and our freedom as well. And as they push through these obstacles, they move forward, and in 52 days, the walls were completed. What had been left abandoned for years was accomplished in just a short time because one man stepped into this role. He gathered others around him, rallied them around, and together they did what not one person could do, but what it took that community to do. And as they established the city once again, they had a time where they came together and they read from the book of the law throughout all those books that Moses gave. And as they heard the scriptures and they recognized what they were doing compared to what they should be doing, they were moved to to grieve, to mourn, to cry. As they heard what God had asked of these people, the the Jewish people to do, and they saw where they had disobeyed, had walked away, they were grieved. But then they turned that morning into a time of celebration, that Nehemiah encouraged them, don't let this be a time of mourning. You've heard now, you can rejoice because God has given you his instruction once again. And we've talked about the necessity to be moved to a place where we see the error of our ways, we acknowledge it, recognize it, and then we have reason to rejoice because we've been aware of these things, made aware of what was absent in our lives, and now we can bring it to a place where it is present in our lives. And last week we talked in chapter 9 of the need for this nation to repent and confess their sins over and over again. Chapter 9 is a history of God's dealing with this people 
And we see that God is always postured to restore, to, to build up, to bring back. And when he would do that, they would again fall into their areas of disobedience and God would allow them to, to live in that area of disobedience and then would come the persecution, the discipline. They would turn, repent, and every time they turned to God, God was ready for them to repent, receive them back to himself. And we talked about the need in our own lives to constantly be in a place of confession. That like the children of Israel, we too, over and over and over again, are in need of restoration. It's an ongoing process. It's not something that just happens once. It's something that happens continually in our lives. And that there is a need for that confession. How First John talks about confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that word confess means to say the same thing, to be in agreement. That we have to come to a place where we agree with God about the condition that we're in. And he's already there waiting to bring us to a place of restoration forgiveness and to make us whole. And so this is the backdrop. This is where we find ourselves. And and although I kind of spoiled the end of the story last week, how I talked about how although they last week signed an agreement, a binding agreement, a contract saying, God, we are going to keep your statutes. We're going to obey those things. And I, I spoiled it by saying that they're not. I read the end of the book and they blow it again. I didn't mean to spoil it for you guys, but we're going to look at that agreement and what it entailed. Because although they didn't keep it, what they wrote were good things. What was written in their agreement to God, this binding covenant that they were making to God, were good things and things that are important and I think practical for us. And so that's what we want to look at this morning in chapter 10. Now, verses 1 through 8, Nehemiah is talking about the governors and the priests. I'm not going to read these names because that would be hilarious for you and awful for me. Verse 9 through 13, he talks about the Levites who served in the temple. And so these are all the people who were part of this binding agreement. In verses 14 to 27, we have the civic leaders. And we see that all the people who were in positions of leadership were a part of this agreement. And you see, change takes place with everybody. And those who are in positions of leadership need to recognize responsibility as well as those who are not in positions of leadership. Many times, especially in uh, churches, you have this idea where a pastor is preaching at you, telling everyone what you need to do, but if the pastor's not doing it, then there's a problem. Everyone needs to be on board. And so the leaders here in these first verses are all on board with what's happening. The change is taking place with those who are in positions of leadership as well as to everybody. And now in verse 28, we'll read from 28 to the end of the chapter that talks about this agreement and all that is written in it. It says, the rest of the people... Priests, Levites, gatekeepers, musicians, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring people for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who were able to understand. All these now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse 
and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. So they're all on board. This is what we're going to do. Verse 30, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the people around us or to take their daughters for our sons. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forgo working the land and will cancel all debts. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God, for the bread set out on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbaths, at the new moon feasts, and at the appointed festivals, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel, and for all the duties of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of God at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and our, of every fruit tree. As it is also written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle and of our herds and of our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests ministering there. Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priests, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all our trees and of our new wine and olive oil. And we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. The priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes, and the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the storeroom of the treasury. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine, olive oil to the storerooms where the articles and for the sanctuary and the ministering priests, the gatekeepers and the musicians are also kept. We will not neglect the house of our God. Okay. I don't know about you, but you might hear these things and it's like, what the heck's going on here? They're bringing olive oil and new wine and grains and they're offering shekels and a tenth of this and this. And what we're going to look at here is the agreement that they made which is connecting them to what God had asked of them throughout their scriptures. God had set this nation aside to be used by him to be an example to the world around them. They had forgotten that, they had neglected that, so they're getting back on track. And this is part of this agreement, how they're going to continue now to worship in the temple and do those things. And there are three areas that we're going to focus on about this binding agreement. And again, they're good things. Even though you might not have storerooms of grain or, you know, fruit trees or flocks that you can bring, there's principles here that I think are good. And there's three that we want to touch on. The first one we want to look at is the close relationships, the family. We're also going to look at work and how our work takes place and also then our worship. And in all these things, 
How can we practically involve God with these areas of our work? Because if God is not a part of these things, where is he supposed to be part of? The first he starts off in verse 30, he says, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage, period. No, that doesn't say that. To the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. I just had to say that because my daughter's here. Um, What's this about? Now, the idea here is not that of nationality. It's not nationally motive. We're not going to give our daughters to people who are outside. This isn't about race or nationality. This is about belief. This is belief motivated. And we know this because there are people throughout the scripture. There's Rahab from Jericho, who was not an Israelite. There is Ruth the Moabite, who both are in the lineage of Jesus Christ. God isn't saying nobody is supposed to be a part of this tribe except for those who are of descent from Abraham. That's not the purpose. The purpose here is that of belief. And why this is important is something that we really need to kind of put on the table. We need to talk about this. I'm not going to spend too much time on this because in April after Easter, we're going to begin a series on relationships that's going to cover a lot of these things. It's not just relationships about marriage or about dating. It's about relationships overall, but it's going to cover a little bit more of this topic. But what is important to understand is if you give yourself to someone whose beliefs are contrary to yours, you're going to tear yourself apart. Beliefs are at the core of who we are. Now, why did they give their daughters to these other people or allow their sons to marry these other people? There's probably a few reasons. One might be just for economy's sake. Now, remember, this is a time where there was arranged marriage, and so this was something that was prevalent. And if I'm going to have my daughter marry someone, well, I want someone who's going to be affluent. That way, you know, she'll be provided for. Maybe it'll pass on to us. I'll know she's taken care of or vice versa. And so that economy might have been a part of the play in this thing, wanting someone who can be supportive. But there's other reasons. Companionship, you're lonely. You know, I'm getting up there in age. If I don't get married soon, what's going to happen to me? You ladies, I know you've had this conversation. I'm 19. (laughs) What will happen to me? And there's the fear and worry, am I going to be alone? But the problem is, if you give yourself to this type of relationship, this one that's close, that is supposed to be the bringing of two people into one with someone who has different beliefs than you. At some point in your life, those beliefs are going to tear you apart. I've seen it happen I don't know how many times. Where, you know, and usually it happens with a a woman... you know, being pursued by a guy and, oh, this guy's a great guy. Oh, man, he's so neat. We have so much in common. He likes food. I like food. (laughs) He needs a car. I have a car. (laughs) 
and you find things to be in common because you want companionship. I understand that. I think we can all identify with that. But what kind of companionship do you want? What kind of marriage do you want? How are you going to raise your children? What is going to be the makeup of your home? What's it going to look like? You see, it's fine when you're dating and it's just a matter of going out to eat and it's these things. But then when it starts becoming really a little bit more serious, dealing with your finances, and you find out that your husband is a thief, that he steals from work, that he lies on his taxes. And he wants you to now be a part of that. You're like, well, I, I don't want to do that. Come on, you have to. If I do it, I'm going to get caught if you don't go along with this. And all of a sudden there's pressure pulling at your beliefs and the things that you want. And we're talking about people who are giving themselves in marriage. I'm not talking about people who are already married, okay? So you guys don't get a get-out-of-jail-free card or anything like that. That's not applying to these things. <laughs> yeah, great. Great illustration, Sam. Get-out-of-jail-free. That's a... I didn't mean it like it sounded. Uh... But this is talking about how you invest your life and the things that are important to you because pretty soon what you believe is going to be more important than what you eat. Pretty soon what you believe is going to shape who you are. And if you're not walking together, you're going to find yourself drifting apart. I know of so many relationships that started in that way. And I've sat down and, and counseled with people. The wife who's there sobbing because her husband is having an affair because his beliefs aren't one where it's big deal. Some of those husbands go to church, by the way. So going to church doesn't, isn't your answer. It's what you believe, what you're living because I know of a number of women who've gone to church and some guy was there, hey, he goes to church. They married him and they found out he just went to church to find a wife. Serious. As soon as he got married, he stopped going to church. And then the true colors came out. Then, you know, the guy's just bar hopping, just carousing guy. It's like, what's, who are you? Hey, you married me. It's too late. I found me a nice wife. This is who I am now. What you believe is so important in the relationships you have. Understand that. The reason God is placing this here, again, isn't just because he wants this race of people. It's because he wants a belief that is solid, that is strong. And those things that you give yourself to in the person 
are going to be powerful in controlling your life and the things that you do. And so God is bringing this there because that's an important thing, why they have to do these things. You know, Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, don't be unequally yoked with a person who's not of faith. You know, and I've heard so many times, well, this person's a really nice guy. You know, he's a really great guy. He's a lot nicer than the Christians that I've dated. I don't doubt that. It's not a matter of how nice the guy it is. It's a matter of what he believes because that's going to shape his future. And you might have to ask the question, why do I have so much in common with a person who does not have faith in Jesus? Someone who says, you know, I have no interest in Jesus. I don't really want to go to church at all. That's just not my thing. Well, I'm going to save them. I'm going to, I'm going to do, you know, this evangelism dating thing. And I'm going to get them. First of all, think about that. You're, you're not marrying that person. You're marrying what you want that person to be. That's not fair to them. Besides it, contrary to what your beliefs are, you're expecting that person to become someone else. Is that fair? Is that good? Is that how you want to start a relationship? I really like you, but my hopes are you're going to be someone else. <laughs> I know all of us enter marriage that way, but you know that's, that's another point. We all have that kind of blindness. I thought you were going to always... Never mind. Anyway, this is an important part. And what's important about this, I'm talking about it longer than I thought I was, but, and, you know, Jesus said something that I think we attribute in a narrower version that it applies. When Jesus says, you know, what does it gain if a man, or what does it profit if a man gains the whole world, but he loses his soul? And what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So many times we think the soul is just salvation. But I think the soul is actually who we are. And sometimes what we give in exchange for our soul is a relationship, companionship, that actually stops us from being who we really are, who we really could be, because we commit ourselves to someone who really isn't going the same direction as we are. And I think those are the kinds of things that can really tear our soul down. Okay, I'm not going to talk about that anymore. Um, That was an important thing. Their beliefs were getting just put aside because of other reasons, monetary, emotional. We don't know all the reasons, but they said, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to be committed to these beliefs that who we are, there is one God. We're not going to be involved with those who are worshiping many gods who are offering uh, idolatrous worship in other ways. We're going to stay focused on Yahweh because he's commanded us to, to do this. We're going to obey. And they've all agreed. They've all signed these things. The next thing that he talks about in verse 31, he says, when the neighboring people, Peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath. We will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. And every seventh year, we will forgo working the land 
and will cancel all debts. The Sabbath was a day that was supposed to be holy to the Lord. It was a day when you're supposed to stop your work and acknowledge God and give him the day. Give him your worship. And so what had happened is the people from all around who didn't believe and know what the Sabbath was were coming. They're selling their goods and, you know, hey, there's less line than the drive-thru on the Sabbath. You know, it's a lot easier to get your stuff. I ran out of whatever it is I ran out of and they're selling it on the Sabbath. So let's just, and pretty soon that day became meaningless. And it was one of those things that God had given to the nation to set them aside so that they could remember who he was. That he was the one who created the earth and on the seventh day he rested. It was uh, bringing them back to this understanding that God is the one who's given these things and he's given us a day to rest even as he rested. And it's good to have a day of rest. I highly recommend it. If you can do it, you got to do it. Now, we're not obligated to the Saturday as they were. Paul talks about that. But it's still good to set aside a day where you're not busy. And I think the key here is it's, it's to acknowledge that God is also the one who provides for you. You see, you make more money if you work seven days a week. You can grow more crops if you till the ground seven years without giving it rest. But God said you're supposed to give it rest. It builds up the land. It builds up the nutrients. It builds you up when you have that rest. And what's more important, giving God time or getting the money? We have to balance these things. We all have to work. And sometimes you have to work on Sunday because that's what your job is. You work weekends, that's just the job I have. That's how it is. But do you still give God place in your life? Because that's what he's talking about here. Is giving God the place he deserves. At that time in these situations, they're talking about a specific day. This is the Sabbath, a very agrarian culture, the, all the crops, the fields, this is how they worked. They didn't have Denny's open 24-7. But the other people would come in there and they would contribute and they would just start being a part of that. And pretty soon their uniqueness, their reminder of who God was started to erode and go away. Do you take time to acknowledge God or is this just about getting money? Is this just about getting all that you can, working until you can work no more. Where is God in your plans? Because I think what God is trying to get at, whether it's in the relationships that are deep and important, or whether it's the work that we engage in, he wants to be involved. He wants to be part of it. He wants you to recognize who he is in that situation. And so now, when you're conducting yourself in business, how are you conducting yourself? Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Verse 11, Paul writes, 
And he says, to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Now, it's kind of, it's sad that these words mean something different to us. When we say mind your own business, it's a negative term, right? Mind your own business. It means get out of my business. But what he's talking about here, living a quiet life, and, and he's meaning take care of your own business. Mind it. Be aware of it. Take care of your own business. And, and the purpose you're supposed to do this and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. You see, if you work in such a way that it's honorable, you're minding your business, you're living a peaceful life, you're not stirring up trouble, you're not causing commotion, you're actually benefiting yourself and those around you, then the outsider can see your life, and it's an example to them. They'll win the respect because of how you're conducting your business. And you're not dependent on anybody. In other words, you're working and providing for yourself and those who are part of your family. And so you're not a burden to anyone else. That's a good example. That's how God is a part of our lives in our work situation by how we conduct ourselves. And as God was telling them at this time, you need to recognize that I want this day for you to set aside. I want you to give time for the land to rest. I want you to acknowledge me. It was to be an example so the people could say, you know what? They're really devout in their beliefs. I respect them. They're not compromising their beliefs. They're not cheating. They're not doing things to fudge and get more money. They're actually being honorable. Their beliefs are showing up in their work. It's very easy to separate our faith life with our work life. And you've probably seen this in people. It happens in every arena, whether it's sports, work, whatever it is. The person goes to church, man, they're a solid person. They're a great Christian. And then they go to work and it's like, oh my gosh, who is that person? Start yelling at everybody. Start dropping F-bombs here in this box. And then goes to church Sunday. Hey, yeah, praise God. I'm like, oh, I saw you the other day. Man, that work, you scared me. You go to church? And there's this duplicity of living. And you see, our work is supposed to be influenced with our faith. Everything about our lives is supposed to be influenced by our faith. And that includes our worship. The word worship means to give worth. There's various words that are used in praise and worship to God throughout the Old Testament, but the idea is to give him what is his worth. And if you aren't practically giving of your life, what is worship? What does it mean? How can we worship God and live a life detached from him? You, you can't. 
How can you give worth to God by not considering him at all except for an hour a week? You're, you're playing games. And we all play games. We all do it to some degree. We all have to come to a place where we say, you know what, I'm not giving you this place in my life like I should. I'm not acknowledging you in this relationship like I should. I'm not giving you what you're worth like I should. We all have to acknowledge it and see where we are. And so, again, these are good things that are written down there. And he goes through and he explains some of the things concerning the worship, how they're worship. It's a practical part of their lives. They're supposed to worship in their finances. It talks about in verse 32 how they give. In verse 34, it says, We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of God a set time of each year contribution of wood to burn. In other words, we're still supposed to be a part of what's happening in, at that time, the temple was the center of worship. Everyone was supposed to be a part of this. This wasn't exclusive to the priests. This was supposed to be inclusive of all the people. That's what we want to take place here. We want this to be a place where we all worship God. Not just those who get paid. Not just those who are well-to-do and can provide money. Not just those who are strong, who can lift chairs. Everyone. Everyone is supposed to contribute. See, that's one of the reasons... We call this a gathering, or why I call it a gathering and not a service. And while I'm trying to get everyone to understand we don't have a service, we have a gathering because this is a group of people gathered together. We're not here to just give you a service. This isn't in and out. We're not just serving you something. We're gathering for a purpose, to give worth to God. And so collectively... We get the money that goes towards the building, that goes towards the $5,000 plus we gave to Haiti, that goes towards the, the money that we gave into Vizcaino and to the pastor's conference that we're going to give next weekend to help build the church down in La Semilla. Collectively, we do this. It's not just the 1%. It's supposed to be all of us contributing. And I love how they took lots and they said, okay, when's your day to come in and bring the wood? We should do donuts. When's the day to do donuts? Tell you what, I want to do something. This is spontaneous. So be, be very afraid. <laughs> Every Sunday morning, at about 8 o'clock, we have guys come in here that put up the chairs, the sound system that work to make everything happen. 8 o'clock. They've been doing it every Sunday for years now. Who would like to bring them breakfast next Sunday? Would someone raise their hand and want to contribute? Colleen? Colleen and Allie, you're going to be in Mexico. <laughs> so unless you're going to drive back. 
And Patty, okay, I'm sorry, I don't know your name. June, okay, the three of you, Patty, Jeannie, and Colleen, you guys can get together after service and next week put together a breakfast for the people who are going to be here. Maybe bring them coffee, maybe bring them pastries. I'm bummed because I'm not going to be here next Sunday because I'm going to be in Mexico. I should have worked this out better. <laughs> you see, but I, I, by just asking, and you guys volunteering to do this, you're going to be contributing to those who have been contributing for years. And you're going to be blessing those who have been blessing us silently for years. And this is just how community works. This is how a gathering is supposed to take place, where we contribute and have a mentality of we come together to be a part of something. And I know we live in a society where we come together to get something. And I know I'm not always on my game. I mean, some Sundays are better than others. I I know that. There's Sundays I leave here thinking, oh my gosh, at least it was true, God. You know, I mean, I, I just... This isn't about me giving you something great. I, I try and give you something that's useful and practical and in, inspirational. But this is about us collectively giving to God what he's worth. And that includes our time so that we can understand the scriptures and what they ask of us. And as these people gather together, acknowledging what God has said and wants of them, they said, we're in agreement. And you three agreed next week to to contribute to those who are here. I don't know how many people we have, probably about five, six people that are here. Does that sound right, Val, that are serving in the morning? About six people? Yeah. Six, seven people, just so you guys know how many to prepare for. If you could bring something, some coffee, whatever you guys want to do, you have your way with that. Come here and contribute to those who have been contributing. And maybe it can help us to see that, you know, this is, this is an us thing. That some of us, like Ted, who was doing announcements, is also talking to our kids. Some of us are in there with those kids. And they'll be very upset with me if I'm here too long. Some of us are preparing lunch so that we can enjoy lunch together. And as each one of them took their turns, what they were doing is saying, together we make a community that brings honor and glory to God. Together, that's what we are supposed to be. And God is desiring to be a part of those deep relationships that we have, of our families. He's wanting to be a part of our work and our work ethics and how we conduct ourselves, acknowledging him in our sphere of work. And he's wanting to be a part of our lives as we gather together to give him worth and worship him. And so the question I want to ask ourselves here this morning is, is he? What role is he playing? And you might be married already. What role is God playing in your marriage? Where is he? 
at your work? How is he influencing your character at work? Is he? When we gather here together, how are you contributing to the work that God is doing among us? And as we ask these questions, I hope we're motivated to do and acknowledge him more. I'm not asking anyone here to do more except for you three who are bringing breakfast tomorrow. I'm going to find out if you did it. Um, not tomorrow, Sunday, next Sunday. I'm not asking you, you know, we need sign-ups here for the children's ministry. We always need sign-ups for the children's ministry. Always. Children's ministry, that's hard. Can I get an amen, Terry? Amen. It's unusual to have Terry in here. She's usually filling in for people who haven't been. There's so much that we can help each other in. We just have to care and want to, and I'm not going to have us sign an agreement, and we're all going to put our name on the seals. It's something that takes place in our heart. But I hope that we can see from their example what it says in the very last verse, we will not neglect the house of our God. What is the house of our God? We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. I'm, we are not going to neglect the work that God is doing in our lives. It's going to spread out and be a part of every area of our lives. It's going to be a part of my relationships with those who I'm close to, with my family. It's going to be a part of my work and how I conduct myself. It's going to be a part of my gathering here together and how I interact with those people. I'm not going to neglect the work of God in my life. Because now it's not a temple that is the focus. Now it is the work of God in each of the temples that we represent. And so we can say the same thing. It's a different focus, but it's the same thing. We do not neglect the work of God in his house. And that house is us. So let's not neglect that. Let's contribute to what God is doing in all these areas of our lives. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray that we would recognize the importance of allowing you to influence these areas that we spoke about this morning. Lord, there is so much more involved with all of these things, but I think they encompass a great majority of our lives, the people that we are close to, our family, our work, and our worship. Lord, all these areas are to be dedicated to you, that we would not neglect your house, your work, the things that pertain to you. So I, I pray that this was an encouragement to, to us, Lord, that we would see that our role is important, that we are not separated from the work you're doing, that we are all to be partaking of it, contributing to it, benefiting from it. And Lord, I pray that we would see these things and God prompt our hearts with how we can give of ourselves and what we can do to 
to benefit those around us. How we can bring your work in our lives to the forefront. Lord, even as we have the Strength Finders next month, I pray that would be an encouragement of how we can be used by you in our community, in our family, at our work, and here in our place of worship. Lord, continue to grow us as a community, as a gathering of believers. Lord, may we represent you well. I thank you for this time, Lord, and pray that you would continue to have your hand upon us. Bless the food that's going to be prepared here in just a while as we're going to be enjoying and eating it. Nourish our bodies and use the money for your purposes, Lord. Again, thank you for your faithfulness and how you have used this community uh, in so many ways. I'm so blessed and grateful, God. And I pray you continue to use us for your glory. I do ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.